Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirojuddin. Joining me once again is Mr. Michael. Michael Gasparo, either way, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Michael, you are a therapist and you uh, specialize in marriage and family therapy and also have experience working with same-sex attraction as well as um, multicultural awareness. Specifically, you've worked with a handful of uh, Muslim clients over the years. And so today I'd like to learn more about some of the insights and observations you've had from their journeys. Welcome to the show, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excellent. So why don't you give us a quick intro to remind the audience um, what you do and why it matters? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a registered associate marriage and family therapist and registered associate professional clinical counselor in the state of California, which means I work with families, couples, children, adults of all kinds of conglomerations to help them address various mental health issues in the context of traditional psychotherapy. I do this because I'm passionate about healing and health and wholeness for people. I do this often from my perspective as a Catholic man, as a religious man, but I work with people of a variety of religious backgrounds or no religious background. And as you mentioned, I work with quite a few Muslim clients every week, uh, mostly or predominantly Muslim men from different places. And I also feel very passionate about the work I do with men with same-sex attraction. Many of the people who come to our clinic experience unwanted same-sex attraction in the sense that it doesn't define them. They don't identify as part of what they would call the LGBT community. And they have a predominant identity most of the time in their religious values. So as a person of their particular religion, let's say they're of the Islam religion, they identify with that prior or above these same-sex experiences. And they want to come to counseling to address any underlying causes that contribute to those experiences or behaviors of same-sex erotic arousal, and we help them work through the underlying issues that may be contributing, and as a result, they might find freedom from unwanted behaviors or attractions and live more in accord with their conscience. And part of the reason I'm so passionate about it, as you mentioned, is because one, my own story of leaving homosexuality and, and taking a path towards living a full life as a Catholic man, trying to integrate my sexuality according to my conscience, which is the work of a lifetime in many ways. And also, I'm passionate about it because unfortunately, in the United States and in other countries around the world, there is an assault from political organizations on the right for individuals to pursue therapy according to their conscience in this regard specifically. So we try to stand in solidarity with and support of the men and women around the world who want support from their religious leaders and their pastors or as well as the professional therapy community to help them deal with these attractions in a way that fits according to their religious convictions. Excellent. Thank you so much for that summary. So I'm very intrigued to, uh, we start, we scratched the surface in our first interview together. Um, and I'm very intrigued to learn more about, you know, possible, let's say themes that tend to exist with, uh, brothers with this particular journey who come to you. And I know that you have, um, experience with the Muslim community and, you know, clients all over the world from different cultures. And I'm wondering if, there were some particular themes that over the years you have recognized tends to be a good place to, let's say, start. I know that typically you want to go through past development and understand family dynamics. Uh, I know that according to Nicolosi's um, approach, there is a uh, specific type of context that can increase the likelihood of same-sex attraction. So, you know, the dynamic that he describes, I remember from 
his work uh, that you have, you know, the, the masculine energy tends to be cold or distant or even rejecting or critical. And the young boy may be an only child or he has older male siblings. And there tends to be a very strong attunement to the feminine as a result of not having that bond or bind with the father or the masculine energies in his life. Is this something, this dynamic, am I describing it properly, number one? And number two, is that actually something you find, um, statistically speaking, uh, uh, the context of many of these brothers who go through this journey? Or you found situations where that's, never, that's not even the case, but some other things were, were going on? Most of our clients coming to our clinic from any background, including clients with a Muslim background, have most often what you're describing, which is the triadic narcissistic family dynamic. And this involves, as you mentioned, the over-involved or enmeshed mother and the detached or critical father. And this can be exacerbated by issues with siblings, like as you mentioned, critical or bullying or distant older brothers, or issues of sexual abuse from an older male or a peer. There are a variety of factors that can exacerbate the existing family dynamics. And in this process, we wanna be humble enough to say, we're not describing what is the context for the development of homosexuality for every person. We're describing what is common for some people and tends to be most common for people that come to our clinic. And I would say that the Muslim men I work with are no exception. This is the most common dynamic I see in the lives of the men that come to our clinic that I work with on a regular basis. And I think for a lot of them, they don't fully understand this dynamic until we discuss it, but we don't impose this view onto clients. We're open to clients having a different experience, such as a very close relationship with the father. So we're not here to just put clients into a box and see them the way we want. We want to let them, their experience inform how we view their family system and how we work with them. And what are some of the sources of trauma that specifically Muslim clients have discovered you know, in their past. I mean, from my work with the Muslims, there tends to be uh, a lack of intimacy or safety, emotional intelligence in families. Um, this is a very co strong reason why I, I, people I've worked with who've had pornography addictions or um, sexual addictions, and sometimes, uh, you know, that can lead to um, exploring or curiosity of uh, sexual fluidity. Uh, is this something that you have found typical as well with certain families uh, that there is a lack of intimacy or emotional intelligence in the family. In other words, there's a sense of isolation or alienation. I think that I've seen that for sure. So let me describe a couple of different dynamics I've noticed. The first, as you mentioned, would be the sort of alienation factor. And I've seen this a lot, especially with Muslim men whose father is very rigid. And with the rigid father, there comes a sense of alienation related to the lack of attachment to the masculine predominant figure in their life. Now, this could be because the father is really busy with work. It could be because he travels a lot. It could be because the father is invested in other endeavors and is less interested in the family life. It's certainly not the case for all Muslim men, but this is the case common to our experience with the clients I work with. Another example here of the issue at hand, Kareem, is that for some of my guys that I work with, for many of them over the years, there is ex existence of an older, not father figure that 
involves them at adolescence in some kind of sexual, I guess it's it's molestation, but it's presented in a way that is seductive to the to the adolescent. And it's intrusive and it's often masturbatory or pseudo-sexual, but it is predatory. It is an older man who's an adult preying on an adolescent boy, and they probably notice that this adolescent figure is lacking the strong attunement and attachment from the father. And this is what we call grooming, as you probably know in your work. It's when a predator or somebody who has the interest of molesting a young person tries to find the person that they think will be less likely to either seek out help after this happens or is more vulnerable to being uh, taken advantage of in this way because they long for attention, approval, affirmation from a male figure. And what I've seen is that for some of the men in the Muslim community I work with, they don't understand fully as this happens to them in adolescence, how wrong or how impactful it will be in their future development because they have no other context than the one they grew up in, which is my dad was gone and this guy came in and showed me this attention. Some of them are able to overcome this through their own recollection and their own repentance process of trying to understand how it impacted their spirituality or their life. I say repentance, let me clarify. I don't mean repenting for what they did, but sort of understanding what happened to them in the context of their religious convictions, that it's not their fault, that they were taken advantage of, that they can overcome it through healing. But for others, they really take on an identity that they are bad, disgusting, gross. And that shame exacerbates any existing masculine identity wounds and leads them further into the homosexual world of enactment through pornography or otherwise. So what we want to do is help those those men address this abuse that happened to them from these older males when they were teens or younger and find healing so that they can release the shame of these experiences and not take on as an identity these bad things that happened to them and begin to move forward as a more whole man in relationship to other men and to potentially a future spouse. Thank you so much for that summary. Now, the do you find that the trauma, whatever the trauma that the client went through, is it necessarily proportionate to the intensity of needs for intimacy, fulfillment, or... I know last time you 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 shared a very powerful phrase. You said what what is exotic becomes erotic. Yeah. I never forgot that. And um, you know we were starting to un- unfold uh, in that first conversation how when I am in such hunger and thirst for basic human intimacy, right? The, the attention, affection, approval, and and so forth, um, safety to be an emotional being that I am, and so forth. Um, what one of the ways that this can develop over time is a, an extreme need for intimacy from the same gender energy, and that becomes sexualized over time, correct? At least theoretically. Yeah, for a lot of people, that's the case, I would say. Mm-hmm. And is it is it proper or, or acceptable to say that you know, the, the, to the degree that I'm lacking this intimate fulfillment as a human being, um, I will proportionately, you know, project that in some kind of a sexual energy or nature or because I, I, I get the sense from some of the cases that I'm aware of and ones I've learned that it's not it's not necessarily a conscious thing. Right. It's like you said, there's there can be somebody who is identifying a vulnerable child and they start grooming them and they're going to now take advantage of this uh, young individual and this young individual 
isn't necessarily thinking about sexuality or anything like this. They're just like, wow, I'm getting attention, affection, approval from another person. And I don't even get that from my own flesh and blood. So it becomes almost like that novelty takes over. And then that could lead into a deeper sense of bonding with the person, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think two things are happening when you describe this dynamic. The first that I hear is that somebody had a need that was unfulfilled. That is normal, but it's exaggerated in people with this condition. In other words, no one has all of their needs perfectly met in childhood. But when there is a strong deficit of some important basic human needs, like the need for safety, the need to feel secure, the need to feel masculine, that deficit is, let's say, equal to the mere high opposite of which that person will often seek erotic enactments related to that need. So if somebody feels extremely unsafe in childhood, the positive experience of sexualized safety through molestation by this older male might be equally as high as the low they experienced prior, making the pornography enactment or the molestation experience doubly as enticing or confusing. Pornography often is enticing, okay? Molestation is often confusing because the pleasure and the the bodily sensations associated with that, as well as the good part of the safety feeling, get trumped up really high because of the level of unsafe they felt before. And it's mixed in, the confusing part is it's mixed in with this unwanted experience. They didn't want to be molested or sexualized. So what we actually do, Kareem, in counseling is to help them unlink or detach the good feelings they got from the negative feelings. So in the molestation experience, for instance, once we help them strip away and normalize that it's normal for them to have felt good feelings while being touched in a sexual way, then they can start to see they didn't want it, that it was an unwanted experience, and they can feel the grief and begin to heal from the trauma of the sexualized component that tricked their brain, basically, into feeling safety when it wasn't actual safety. So we don't want to minimize the need for safety. We just de-link it from what was actually a very unsafe experience and help them reattach and gain safety in healthier ways. Similar to pornography, where they've linked in their mind, looking at pornography makes me feel safe. We try to de-link the good feeling from the negative behavior so that they can find healthier outlets to make up that deficit, that trauma that you're describing of not feeling whatever need was missing in their life before. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting explanation. So what I understood is that it's almost like fundamentally we're dealing with the, the systems of pain and pleasure. And sure. whatever pain I'm carrying, right, trauma, lack of fulfillment, etc., if I experience a type of familiar pleasure that maybe, let's say, represents um, similar qualities – Um, that can be perhaps confused or improperly paired or associated with like, you know, the molestation with, let's say, the lack of fulfillment and intimacy in my, you know, development as a human being. Because I know that with porn addicts, 
this is tends to be a very common um, experience for people, right? Is it's like, I, I didn't get emotional. Like I, one of the things I like to do with people is I say, look at, this is how I describe emotional intelligence. And you have things like, you know, you get attention, affection, approval, and there's vulnerability and empathy and people are attracted to your being, right? They, um, you matter, you have worth. And then I said, now let's look at the um, facets of sexuality, sexual health. And I list basically the same traits and qualities. You need someone who's mm. going to be attracted to you, someone who thinks you're worthy, someone who wants to, gives you attention, affection, approval, is vulnerable with you, and so on. And so one thing that I um, have kind of realized through my work with people's journeys around this is when intimacy, let's say it's a blue circle representing intimacy, fulfillment, and emotional intelligence, when that's hindered or stunted or unfulfilled, Oftentimes when people start exploring pornography or awaken to their own sexuality, we're talking generally around puberty for a lot of people, right? And so that now introduces pleasure that has never been felt before, but it also mm-hmm. introduces um, similar facets as emotional uh, health and intimacy would also provide to the human soul, if you will, right? Because they're both very pleasurable fulfilling bonding experiences. And so I, I kind of describe it as like when I don't get the blue and I learn about the red, you know, sexuality, mm. I jump that gap much faster yeah. or, you know, without even hesitation because it actually resembles so much of what I never got from the blue. And typically I think as a man of faith, you can relate to, you know, Perhaps one of the ways God intended the human being is to develop in that healthy, nourishing family with intimacy, with fulfillment, and then naturally that will upgrade into sexual expression in marriage, and that's what we call marital love, right? Because love is really intimacy plus sexuality combined, right? Versus that's why you can have intimacy without sex, and you can have sex without intimacy and to a degree, right? right? What are your thoughts about that, uh, feedback or I think that really supports what I'm I'm saying it explains it in a way that is really helpful in the sense that like you're saying if you don't have if you're missing really important facets of developmental needs then the illusion of pornography or the illusion of care from a same-sex predator of some kind is somehow going to create a scenario where you feel like you're getting something you're not And that, especially with, let's say, pornography, for instance, is going to create this association, this link between porn and now I feel cared for or bonded. And we know, though, the problem with that as religious people and as people of reason and logic is that it's an illusion. It's not actual human intimacy. So you're tricking your brain and it's not really giving you the thing you want anyway because you want that from another person ultimately or from your relationship with the creator, with the divine. And it's giving you neither of those things and it's also leading you down a path that's reinforcing sexual behaviors that aren't in line with your conscience or your values. Mm -hmm. Have you found, Michael, perhaps in your own journey or with work you've done uh, with others – that intimacy with the divine is one of the ways that provides healing for people. I think it is. I think everybody is different. So I'm very cautious when I speak about a relationship with God because 
in the sense that I, I see clients who don't have a belief in God, but I still see God working in their lives. Mm. So I try to see God working in everyone's life in some way, even if they're of a different religious background than I am. And I think that's what helps me to work with non-religious clients or even clients of a different religion. And so at the end of the day, though, personally, yes, I do believe if you are willing and open to God's role in your life and in your healing, that is a source of what I call unconditional love, unconditional affirmation. It is often important for people, though, Kareem, who have not had an emotional experience with a person, a human being, that God facilitate through other people in their life this emotional experience in addition to the spiritual experience of unconditional love, which is why with a lot of my Muslim clients, we recommend building their support network out of people in their life who can try to be that unconditional source of affirmation that in some ways mirrors divine love to them. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the tools that has been recommended is to find that intimacy with a person that let's say rep will represent that safety, security, and you know, existential validation, perhaps. Yeah, and no one does it perfectly, in my opinion, because we're human and no human is perfect from my view. However, in this context, we have to encourage clients to take risks. I mean, you, you probably know this, people with a lot of emotional attunement issues or attachment issues in childhood, which many of our clients have, as we've mentioned with the lack of maybe a tuned attached father or an over-involved mother, there's trust issues. So we have to actually encourage them to live a little dangerously as a famous psychiatrist named Dr. Conrad Bars said. If they've developed this fear, this defensive detachment from others as a defense mechanism to protect the self, we have to encourage them to be bold and to take risks. You know, that might mean disclosing over time to a trusted male friend about their struggle with same-sex attraction, or it might mean being honest with their father about the abuse they experienced as a child or the abuse he enacted upon them physically or otherwise as a child. To be bold in their relationships allows room for authentic connection, which facilitates, I think, real intimacy versus hiding and denying and avoiding conflict in their life. Yeah. Have you um, found any specific strategies useful for, let's say, um, a person who has identified same-sex attraction in their psyche, in their self? Mm -hmm. They haven't come, you know, voiced this to their families yet, and their families are going to be, you know, most likely the ones that can help them. Let's say if there's somebody who's younger, 18 or 15, but, or maybe – and what's the case with people who are, let's say, married or single and in college or working, like – how how have you guided people or explored that with clients who are like, okay, this is something I've identified, something I want to um, explore, and I want this, I need the support of my family, but at the same time, they might be a trigger for his mm -hmm. trauma. So how do you juggle all that um, in, in situations where that was relatable? Yeah, the question's daunting in and of itself, right? Because it's so it's so tough and it's so specific to each person. I will also say that I always have to take into consideration the, the person's culture because, as you know, uh, people, Muslim men are from all over the world. Different cultures have different laws, different regulations in society, different norms. So we have, one have to be really cautious anytime we're talking about disclosing same-sex attraction that the person lives somewhere where they feel safe 
doing that. And and most of my clients do. They're not necessarily worried about legal ramifications of disclosing this struggle with a family member or friend. But I try to be really cautious and sensitive because I know every culture is not as easy in terms of how they approach this and how they treat people and their families that deal with this issue. So that's the first thing is any counselor, I would say, working with men of uh, Islamic background or any religion, just be sensitive to their culture, to their region, and also to their family dynamic. And instead of just saying, here's a one size fits all approach, tell everyone in your family, because that might not be realistic or safe for that person. That's the, the first step. Um, and the second step, I would say real briefly, is you've got to look at the person's individual circumstances. And if in general, Dr. Nicolosi would say, if you're using the disclosure of same-sex attraction to facilitate intimacy because you don't feel close to somebody, it might not be a very helpful tool. If you already feel close and you want to disclose this to gain support from that person, it may facilitate that you grow closer as a result, but that's not your necessarily end goal because that, in that case, you're sharing something that is equivalent to the level of intimacy you've achieved in that relationship. And that's often, I think, a healthier approach than seeing somebody, oh, I wish I was close to that person. Maybe I'll just run over there and tell them this deepest part of my struggle and that'll facilitate us feeling close. That comes across to the other individual often as overwhelming, like, whoa, we don't know each other that well. So with with these clients, I ask them to just reflect on the level of intimacy and does that facilitate this type of sharing as a start. I don't know if that fully answers the question, but that's a start. With with the journey of same-sex attraction, have you noticed what what would have been some of the um, biggest breakthroughs that you've been able to observe or, or were honored to, to witness? In other words, like when it finally clicked for somebody, like, wow, now I get how my sexuality has been paired with my intimacy and how my intimacy is paired with my, you know, development and experiences. Like, do you feel like it's it's generally it, it's it's um, almost like common sense for people to recognize that integrated system of intimacy and sexuality and that it's really also about emotion, not just like my lust for a particular sexual object or gratification, but it's actually about emotions? Because I know people from Muslim cultures, especially the men, they're not really accessing emotions that often, um, uh, you know, again, some people are like this, right, where... They never grew up with, it was only valid to express anger, maybe fear. So like, do you find that that tends to be a big part of the, um, you know, the healing and recovery is recognizing to how to activate one's actual emotional system or intimacy? Like I've met people who are like, I don't know what it means to feel something, or I don't know how to even identify what an emotion is because they're like so cognitive or so cerebral, which of course is only part of their experience because emotions are physically, physiologically happening. I mean, emotions are biological, right? So um, maybe I confused you because I just kept going on, but... Well, a couple of things. One, you asked, is there aha moments for clients? And it's funny because the biggest aha moments aren't usually, in my opinion, about the same-sex attractions. It's about how they treat themselves based on the fact that they have same-sex attractions. Because this journey of dealing with predominant same-sex erotic arousal for men can feel very daunting, especially if they're in a culture where it is unacceptable to be single and older, where they feel a lot of pressure to be married 
uh, and not that it's bad to be married, and I'm not minimizing the Islamic belief that marriage is sort of the highest good for a man to achieve in some ways, but imagine if you don't feel capable of that, and then there's all this pressure to do that, that can create an intense intrapsychic conflict. And so for a lot of them, learning to have compassion for themselves, to see that their experiences contributed to why they feel this way, why they have this struggle, that they're not at fault for having this struggle, and to feel patient with the process. When I see clients grow in that way, that to me is gold because that will serve them on this journey of overcoming a very difficult a set of wounds and temptations of around same-sex erotic arousal, as opposed to a perfectionistic, impatient mindset, which just furthers distress. So that's the first thing I would say is the biggest moments are those of awareness of patience, grace, self-compassion. And I think that's a, just an amazing thing to witness. And I learn from my clients Absolutely. all the time, by the way, about all this. Me too. If you're not, you're not good at what you do, by the way. <laughs> If you're not learning all the time with your clients. say So is one way to understand what you just shared there, it's like a realization that the person has to have intimacy with themselves, like that self-love, self-care, self-acceptance, self-compassion. I mean, you these phrases, how do they actually look practically? Is it like not having negative inner critic thoughts? Is it you know, taking a risk to be vulnerable with people that matter to you because and and seeking that? you know, intimacy and in ways that are, let's say, appropriate and proportionate to um, the context? I think there are a lot of factors, but one thing you mentioned, which is the inner critic voice, I think that's a big one. Because for many of the clients I work with in Muslim uh, community or in Islamic communities, excuse me, that are um, Muslim men, they have a very strong inner critic about this issue in particular. And many of them think, if I just could get over my same-sex attraction, then I would be okay. Then I'd be normal. Then I'd be then I'd be everything would be fine. And I often use cognitive interventions to just challenge some of these distorted ideas. For instance, do you think that any man, every man with opposite sex attraction has a perfect life? That their marriage is perfect? that they have no depression, that they have no anxiety? Or is it possible that some men, even without this issue, have very serious struggles, emotional, physical, financial? And many of the clients will be start to think about it and say, well, sure, they have all these issues. So what makes you think if you overcome this one struggle that then everything else will be perfect in life? And so the problem is for the clients that when they have this issue, that inner critic fixates on this issue. And what we want to zoom out and do is see that this is one area of life where I'm struggling and I, it's good to overcome it. It's good to heal from it, but it's not the definitive and only thing about me. So it neither defines all the good nor all the bad about my life that I struggle with. And that can give them that growth towards self-compassion, which I think is similar to self-love. I'm air quotes around self-love because I think for religious people, that term kind of doesn't sit well because we know that ultimately we do need God because just having love for the self is not the origin of our goodness. I think I think it's fair to say that Islam and, and my faith share that and that the divine love is the ground. It's the grounding for our value, our dignity, our worth. It's not just about, oh, look at me. I love myself. 
And so I, I just want to highlight that. I don't know if that fits for you as a Muslim man, but I thought I'd put that out there. Remember, at least from the Islamic perspective, it's the same God we're talking about. Right. Just different, uh, different channels of the divine television. Well, we often have more in common than people realize. We have our differences, but I certainly, like I said, I mentioned to you, I look for God working in my clients because that helps me to see the spark of the divine outside of the context of my faith practice. Love it, love it. In part two, we'll talk more about scrupulosity and more on spirituality, existentialism, and the nature of sexual and intimate capacities in the masculine and how that plays out. Thanks for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Please support us at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. Love you, patrons. Thank you for keeping this brewing.